Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about law-abiding citizen. Uh, Your Honor, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm just a regular guy. I am not a flight risk. And this is my first alleged defense. And the prosecution has not presented one single piece of evidence against me. Now, in these circumstances, unless the state has obtained some new piece of information relating to my involvement in the matter in question, then I find it highly prejudicial, even constitutionally offensive, to keep me detained without bail. This is an American vigilante action thriller. Directed by F. Gary Gray, who we previously have talked about uh, when we did our episode about Friday, but he also did The Italian Job, Straight Outta Compton, and The Fate of the Furious. So this is just one of many notable films from F. Gary Gray. The cast includes Ray Charles, King Leonidas, Christine Everhart, Brenda from Scary Movie 4, Amanda Waller, and Doug from House of Cards. I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I also watched it on YouTube. All right. Uh, before we begin our discussion on this movie, we will recap the events in our synopsis written by Joey. Go ahead. During a brutal home invasion, Clyde Shelton's wife and young daughter are killed by two low-life thugs. Clyde survives and successfully brings the charges to criminal court only for the prosecuting attorney, the smooth-talking Nick Rice, to strike a deal behind Clyde's back. The deal means one of the criminals will be sentenced to death and the other will be let off on lesser charges. Clyde is pissed, but Rice is worried that he won't be able to get a conviction in court. He sees the deal as a sure thing, which also happens to keep his 95% win streak alive. Ten years later, Rice attends the lethal injection of one of the criminals. He reassures his protege, Sarah, that it will be a serene experience, like watching someone fall asleep. But when the plungers fall and the chemicals course through the man's veins, he screams and thrashes in pain. Something has gone horribly wrong. An investigation begins, and suspect number one is his previous accomplice. The other assaulter is out of jail and living in a terrible apartment. He gets a mysterious call warning about the police incoming. He runs for his life, following the instructions of the caller. Eventually, he ends up in an abandoned lot. The caller reveals that he has been Clyde Shelton the entire time, and he is there to take his revenge. Clyde is set up in an elaborate torture chamber where he dismembers the man who killed his family limb by limb. He even goes so far as cutting off his eyelids, pumping him full of adrenaline to keep him awake, and setting up a mirror so the man can watch his body being taken apart. Clyde films the entire thing. The police discover the body, and that leads them to conclude that Clyde is in fact the killer. They arrest him and put him in prison. A cat and mouse game begins between Nick Rice, the lawyer, and Clyde Shelton, the mastermind murderer. Clyde has set up elaborate traps all over the city and captured key members of the criminal's legal team to torture. Clyde represents himself in court and even almost gets out on low bail, but instead goes on le-epic rant about how the justice system is totally broken and easily exploitable. He calls the judge a bitch, and she puts him back in jail. Clyde kills his cellmate with a shiv and gets sent to solitary confinement. 
From there, he continues to mess with Rice and the rest of the district attorney's office by killing the judge in his case with a remote explosive in her cell phone. Rice and the DA, a man named Jonas Cantrell, meet with a spy who used to work with Clyde. The spy tells them that Clyde is some sort of murder contraption mastermind and can basically kill anyone he wants to. This doesn't put anyone at ease. Clyde demands he be let out and all charges be dropped or he will, quote, kill everyone. When Nick refuses, car bombs kill most of Nick's colleagues, including his protege, Sarah. But then, at their funeral, the DA, Cantrell, is killed by a bomb disposal robot outfitted with a Browning heavy machine gun. This is the last straw for Nick. He goes to the mayor to offer his resignation, but the mayor instead promotes him to DA. She orders the city to be put on lockdown until they stop Clyde. Nick buckles down and does his homework. Clyde owns a ton of abandoned, run-down properties, including one very close to the prison he is currently in. Nick goes there to investigate and discovers an elaborate headquarters with tunnels leading to the solitary confinement cells. It turns out Clyde could have left at any time and has been using this space as a base of operations for his elaborate murder sprees. Nick figures out where Clyde's next target is, City Hall during an emergency meeting with the mayor. Clyde has planted a bomb in the building, intending to kill the city's leadership. Nick and a small group arrive on the scene and locate the bomb. They aren't sure if they can disarm it, so they discuss what to do next. Clyde returns to his cell, only to find Nick waiting for him. Nick offers a cryptic warning and tells Clyde he no longer makes deals with murderers. But when Clyde pulls the cell phone out and calls the number, the bomb isn't at City Hall. It's under Clyde's bed! Nick has finally outsmarted him. Clyde is cinematically engulfed in flames as he stares at a bracelet that his daughter gave him. Nick goes on to live a happy life and even attends his daughter's cello recital, which he had always missed before because he was too busy. The end. All right, those are the events of Law Abiding Citizen. We'll begin our discussion with our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about this movie? I thought Jamie Foxx and Gerard Butler were very good actors. I think they did everything pretty well. Um, I really like the torture stuff and the cool murder contraptions. I thought those were entertaining, unique, interesting. Um, I thought there was a pretty epic setup. The first like half of this movie, pretty cool, honestly. I was, I was on board. Um, and our two leads are both sort of gray, which makes uh, the movie more interesting, more interesting to talk about, more interesting to think about, because neither of them are really good guys or bad guys necessarily. Um, so you know, there's, there's a lot to discuss there. Cool. What about you? Uh, f- so what I liked first and foremost is that we got naked Gerard Butler. You know, he's got <laughs> Only one from of those- the back. <laughs> it's true, um, but that's better than nothing. So that's he does that's say first penis a couple times. <laughs> does that count? <laughs> you know, Gerard Butler is super shredded. Uh, you know, late two thousands, uh, he was at the top of the maybe the top of the uh, physique game in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So gotta give him a, a, a pro for that. But more seriously, Gerard Butler versus Jamie Fox is a epic matchup going you know head to head. I think that was really cool. That enough is at least enough to get me interested in trying this movie out. Uh, I think there's a really cool concept they have in this movie of having this inventor with really good planning skills and also like building these contraptions. Uh, And he's 
like kind of the the slasher murderer killer but you're kind of rooting for him like i, mm-hmm. I think when they can change your uh, expectations around like that it, it's really interesting and there's just the right amount of gruesomeness where it gets the point of cro- across without being gratuitous i didn't regret sitting down to watch this movie it did it had the chance to turn into saw and it didn't and i think that is for the best it wasn't you don't think it was too gruesome like not it wasn't you don't you didn't feel squeamish while you're watching it I, there were moments where i was like oh my gosh that's a lot of blood but i don't think they ever crossed that line where i'm like okay i wish i could unsee this uh which right right i feel like that line is easy to cross with me but anyway so those are our <laughs> pros let's get to our cons joey what did you not like about law-abiding citizen i think i just had problems with the writing in general for this movie i feel like this movie has more holes than swiss cheese um, really nice. surface level criticism of the justice system that feels completely toothless. Um, the ending for me, not satisfying, mostly because I thought Clyde was more sympathetic than Nick. Um, the best parts of the movie are at the beginning when he starts uh, resorting to bombs and guns. It becomes far less interesting and far less poetic um, in its execution. And I cannot distress this enough. All right. This is probably one of the great sins in movie making but an extended lip-smacking eating scene <laughs> more than not just that right it was cutting between different things right i had this movie up super loud because for whatever reason movies made at this time period were all i had to turn my tv up to 70 in order to hear them <laughs> i had all my doors closed and everything right the air conditioning was not bothering me that much it was just this there's kind like quiet 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 like dialogue they're all whispering for some reason until they get to the point where he has to eat a freaking steak and all i can hear is his freaking lips smacking together and uh you know him appreciating the asparagus gosh i wanted to tear my ears out i was uh, i freaking hate that okay i'm done okay wow uh so i agree with you on how this movie starts off very strong and uh and then gets weaker as it goes along which is really disappointing uh the resolution to our conflict doesn't align very well with the message of the film or the potential message of the film Uh, what are we supposed to come away with this movie thinking about the american legal system Uh, this movie has a chance to say something profound but ends up just being junk food Uh, it's it's cool it if you don't think about it you're like oh yeah they totally criticize the american legal system but (laughs) if you spend any time at all thinking about what they really said it's it doesn't go beyond american legal system bad right it just you know it's barely saying anything at all so that's our pros and cons we'll move into our overall section right now and i want to start off by saying this movie had heavy late 2000s uh vibes to me uh, watching okay. it i i got taken straight back to ninth grade uh dvds are in vogue cell phones are used to make calls and damn it if terrorism isn't the scariest thing in the world uh and also jamie fox and gerard butler are mega stars and watching them go head to head is epic so this movie True. quickly endeared itself to me early on um and also it drew me in with the gruesomeness, gruesomeness of the revenge murders. Uh, and But then beyond that, it makes you stick around for this Gerard Butler versus the American legal system thing. And I think that's where things fall off a good bit. Uh, also, I'm going to be referring to these characters as Jamie Foxx and Gerard Butler. I, that's, that's who they were to me in the movie. I know they have different names, but 
that's who they are. So <laughs> okay. uh, try to try to stick with me. Try to keep with um, Try to keep up. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I I'm not sure I see the point that Gerard Butler's trying to make about the American legal system. He says making deals with murderers is not a good way to do justice, but he doesn't really offer a better solution. He's like, if they had walked free, then I would have been okay with that because you could have held your head high. Really? You wouldn't have still done your revenge tour and still said the legal system was broken? Why not kill the forensic technicians that fucked up the evidence that made it so it wasn't admissible in court? Kind of seems like, you know, he was out for vengeance and not to prove that the legal system is broken, despite what he said. Or at the very least, he's out for both. Yes, no, I completely agree. Um, He's definitely out there for vengeance, which is kind of the, the reason why we have a justice system at all is because people want revenge. Okay, so for me, I was thinking really hard about what these, how these characters were misinterpreting each other, like how they were not seeing eye to eye, right? Right. And to me, I think they are seeing the legal system. They are seeing the legal system as two completely separate things. Um, for Nick, he sees the law as his job. He has to win cases, get convictions. The more, the better, right? Even if this means lesser sentences, overall, quantity over quality, you might say, right? Um, and then Clyde sees the law as an elaborate social ritual where justice is found. Everyone shows up and plays a role, and then the jury makes the decision, and you have to live with it. Either you convince them uh, that you know, you're right, or, you convince, or you're not able to convince them, and you're wrong. So it's okay if the jury doesn't convict someone that is guilty, because at least you said you tried your hardest and got your story on the record, and there was an attempt to find justice. But, you know, I, although I find Clyde more sympathetic, I completely disagree with his conclusions here. This is obviously an extreme example for the movie, but in general, Nick's approach is a logical one and makes sense. If, it, if a deal can be struck, I think it's worth considering. It's ironic that this movie sort of shows the other side of this drama, right? Normally in movies that deal with this kind of, you know, um, like get the murderer off or like have, have the murderer confess or something. It's, the pers- it's a person being wrongfully con- charged, right? And then they consider pleading guilty even if they're innocent in order for a reduced sentence you know, uh, otherwise it's sort of a reverse situation, but in both of these, it's shown that like the deals are the bad thing with deals are always a compromise with evil. Um, but you know, Clyde is upset that the legal system failed him and goes to great lengths to show how broken the system was, but he's wrong about what's broken. You don't, you don't want a justice system that's full of passionate emotion, emotion driven people. You want a justice system that's cold and apathetic, something that dishes out punishment or reward neutrally and does so equally. This is the point of having a justice system in general. Instead of people taking matters in their own hands and finding justice on their own terms, we agreed to defer that responsibility and power to the state and let them sort it out through a bureaucracy. That way, we end cycles of violence and revenge and allow people to move on with their lives. And, you know, and when the justice system fails, as we see it do with Clyde, it's possible it's because there are corrupt people in institutions, right? which is something that they kind of point out. It could be that there's a deeply rooted biases at play, which is the truth about our legal system, or just poorly designed systems in general. But I think this criticism of it being cold or dispassionate, right, that Nick doesn't care enough, is not a failure of the justice system, honestly. I think that's kind of the point of having a legal system like this is that there you can disassociate the crime from like the punishment so that you're able to dish it out 
neutrally. Right? You know, when when somebody you know murders someone, right, and then that and then that guy gets sent to jail, right? That guy is sent to when he's sent to jail isn't necessarily mad at the state for sending him to jail, right? Maybe he's mad at himself for making a stupid decision, or maybe he's mad at the you know the people that that like went through the process of convicting him. But the like the legal system in general isn't necessarily the the subject of his ire because the that it's just a mechanism, it's just a machine that like create you know convicts people. It's not like a a thinking, feeling um, entity, right? Although it's made up of a bunch of people it's still like got this neutrality to it. At least that's how it's supposed to work in theory. That's the idealized version. I know that's not really how it works, but that's kind of the the, the criticism here, right? Is like yeah. the legal system is evil because they didn't care enough. They didn't go through the effort enough to uh, convict my, you know, convict these guys killers or, or as killers or whatever. Yeah, I guess it would have been more compelling if the if it was more evident that there was corruption within this particular portion of the legal system right where it's like the philadelphia courts and the people involved in in the legal systems here specifically are uh, are a problem and here's why because like for instance we had that one um judge i i felt like they, they kind of sometimes were in line with something like this and then other times they weren't because uh when Jamie Fox, which is again his character's <laughs> name, uh, goes to the judge and asks her to restrict Gerard Butler's access to the outside world because they're trying to slow him down and not allow him to continue doing his little schemes. Uh, mm-hmm. He's like, justify it however you want, violate his civil rights for the greater good. And she's like, yeah, I'm game, you know, because I'm a judge. I can do whatever I want. Right. And then immediately she answers the phone and explodes on her head, killing her. So it showed that like the crime or her sin against the, the potentially just system by bending the law because somebody told her to in a corrupt way. And then the, uh, you know, punishment for that sin, that's right. something that would endear us to Gerard Butler's worldview. Um, but that, that's not entirely consistent. Uh, it, it seems like he's more raging against just the, the system in general and not necessarily the players the whole time. Yes. I mean, the lawyer, for example, that is representing the criminals in this case, right? You know, again, he's he's in a very similar position to um, Nick Rice, to Jamie Foxx, right? That there is a, like, he's just doing his job, right? He's He's trying to give these guys a fair shot because that's what we have designed our system to do. Even people that don't necessarily deserve it deserve to have, um, you know, proper... Um, representation in court right so like what is what what exactly was this guy's crime right was that that he did his job too well right he was just fulfilling the you know the position that was basically appointed to him so it it seems completely unfair for to like blame him um to the degree that he does right and i think what's confusing i think about this movie is that at first you know, Clyde, Gerard Butler is very sympathetic, right? We want to see him kill these guys and I want to see him get justice however he defines that. But as it goes on, he starts killing more and more people and you're like, okay, well maybe he actually is some sort of psycho murderer, right? And then all of his convictions and all of his ideas sort of fall apart because it's like, well, what exactly does this guy believe, right? What what exactly is he doing? He just seems like he wants to kill people. So uh, it's, it's like, should I be taking him seriously? Because 
at the end of the movie, I think I'm not supposed to. But at the beginning of the movie, I think I'm definitely supposed to. And that kind of, you know, like descent into madness is not portrayed well to us, right? We don't get to see him change over time. We just see his actions sort of become more and more uh, chaotic. But that also seems to be part of his deliberate plan, right? So he was like this the whole time, actually, and we just didn't see it that way. I don't know. I, I uh, it, it's it's hard to wrap my head around exactly because I don't really know. I want to be rooting for Clyde. He's definitely more sympathetic than Nick is, but I also can't because he's a murderer. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> well, I don't know where to fall. I don't know what to think. I really. Uh, well, honestly, I think this movie is a little thematically inconsistent. Although one theme that comes across strongly is that everything kind of falls apart and gets worse the longer the movie goes on. Um, it's <laughs> yes. almost like Clyde or, or Gerard Butler didn't expect to get this far. He's like, well, I honestly <laughs> thought I'd be dead by now. So, like, I guess this next one is not really going to be that elaborate, but I'm, I'm just going to keep going and see how far I go. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't have time to make this next one really poetic. I'm just going to bomb a building like that's that i mean i've got these explosives um and and like kind of as well uh within that i thought it was super disappointing that he was sneaking out of the prison to be his own accomplice and do the killing like yes. the the thing that made it so cool at the beginning or like when he first got into prison was that things were still happening without him on the outside right. he was so good at planning so he had the foresight to be able to pull off a murder where he was in prison the whole time when they did the mur- the Reynolds murder where he buried that guy underground and they j- didn't get there just in time. They just missed it because the warden didn't care about getting it there right at one. He was more concerned with, uh, you know, searching the stuff as it came through. So I thought like that one was super cool. And I'm like, oh, he's going to be pulling off stuff like this all movie long. And it's only going to get more impressive the longer he's been in prison because then his foresight will have had to have been that much better to be able to make, like put events in motion that only come to their fruition days in advance. Like, oh, right. that's, that's going to be awesome. But then instead it's like, nah, I just put myself in solitary where I literally just tunneled out and I just go outside and I am my own accomplice. And the prison doesn't check while i'm gone like <laughs> he didn't even do like a he like didn't even get like a volleyball and like draw a smiley face on it right and right like put or, it under the or like string up a, a trophy with a string so that when you open the door he like rolls over <laughs> and has right. and has um a, a tape recorder of him snoring <laughs> <laughs> right instead they just don't check they're like okay put him in solitary and literally never look at him again so he's able Job to go done, guys. Yeah. <laughs> We've washed our hands of this guy. We've solved the murders. Yeah. So, but, but that makes like the fact that he goes out makes him seem like way less of a mastermind, especially because a lot of his schemes rely on ridiculous, laughable disguises. Like <laughs> the first one was okay. It was probably the best one where it was before he was in prison. And it's when he's, uh, you know, in the police car and he gets the uh the guy to like put pull the gun on him yeah i thought that was fine because it's been 10 years there's no way to remember him and with a, a little bit of disguise should be enough but yeah then well, i be- actually i actually paused the movie there and i was like is that jared butler like cause before he reveals himself i'm like uh, that would make sense for that to be jared butler and i was looking at him like i don't think so i i couldn't tell from the from the way it was i wouldn't be surprised if they actually had a different actor doing part of that but it was 
No, it was it was a good enough disguise. It fooled me. So absolutely. But then later on, he's literally a famous criminal. Like his face would be on the news at the very least. You can't right. just put a beanie on and be like, yeah, well, I'm here to clean the toilets. You know, like it's that's that's not good enough. So anyway, stuff like that where it's like you started off just being such a mastermind genius. And then eventually you're like bad disguised guy with a bomb. It just it degraded so much by the end. And also just while we're talking about that first disguise, the, the reveal of who he was in front of Darby was absolute cheese. He like... <laughs> Darby is sitting there with a gun at his head, doesn't notice him pull out his phone. He doesn't notice Gerard Butler pull out a phone and call him. <laughs> like, if you could see that scene from a different perspective, you would see Gerard Butler pull out a phone and dial, and then Darby answer the phone <laughs> and watch Gerard Butler raise the phone to his head to talk to him. It's like, that is so, like, that is so bogus. I, I thought that, like, I was laughing so hard. Like, it, it was cool that it was him. Like, I, I thought it was a nice reveal that the cop ended up being Gerard Butler, but the way they did it was so funny and, and obviously unintentionally. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing about this movie is that it's, it's, it has all these, like, cool moments that it's trying to get to, but it, it is not interested in doing any of the work to set any of these things up, right? I mean, this is these all of these elaborate, you know, traps and stuff, especially with the ones with like they're based on delicate timing, are so ridiculous, right? So many different variables can come into play here. Like maybe uh, the you know double eagle steak place, um, you know, was short staffed that day, right? Because somebody called in sick and they were slow to get their the order, right? Like that would just screw everything up. Even if the warden got there as soon as as possible, right? Or like maybe the delivery guy gets stuck in traffic somehow, right? Or there's some sort of car accident that unexpectedly blocks the highway. Then the guy can't get there in time, right? All of these things are, you know, not factored for at all, right? All all of this is is hand waved away. It reminds me a lot of these shows or movies that are very like twist heavy you ever watch the show money heist on um on netflix no it's, i haven't seen it's, it it's a spanish show it's so ridiculous i i've i actually ended up watching the whole thing i think it's 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 pretty fun but at the same time there was this constant this is what, this is what would happen right oh my gosh like the police have suddenly like caught up to one of the criminals like he's outside right and um, they've, they've caught him like they have him dead to rights, right? They have the gun pulled on him or whatever. And then they're like, then they cut to a different scene and they come back to it maybe in the next episode or something. And he like just he's like, actually, this was my plan all along was to get caught in this exact moment right now. Like it, it happens. <laughs> it literally happens every single episode. It's like something happens where like they're like, oh, now we found their their headquarters where they were playing the heist. Oh, my gosh. Now they're going to know what's going to happen next. But it turns out that was all part of the plan. It was just a red herring. They knew that they were going to find that house eventually and that it is full of all of this fake evidence so that when they find it, it's fine. Whatever. This is like, OK, we need a twist again. So let's Set it up so like there's something bad's about to happen, but it turns out that that actually was a good thing that that happened. So it's it, that's just how this movie is. It's like, oh, we have an idea for like, oh, you know, maybe he's gonna kill somebody. Uh, maybe he's gonna kill this judge with like a, you know a cell phone in in her uh, a cell phone bomb or something. Oh, perfect, you know. And then we'll just have her say this thing, and then then she'll die, right? And it's like, 
okay, what, how exactly did that work, right? Because that would be really interesting. Be like, oh, he, he mailed her a new cell phone, right? Because the old one got broken or something. And it turns out that he did something to that cell phone. Like he bumped into her or something and switched her cell phone with a different one so that she would order a different cell phone. And that's why she got it. Or maybe he replaced it somehow or something. Or, or there's some elaborate software update that he uh, put in that made the cell phone explode. All of that would be interesting. Instead, it's just like hand of God. Uh, Drug butlers here <laughs> to, to kill you in a poetic way. <laughs> ah. I don't know. I, like, I kind of feel two ways about it because sometimes I feel like over explaining how everything works can get tedious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they did give this kind of, I don't know, omnipotent power to him with the way that the spy described him where he's like, literally anything he wants to happen will happen. Yeah, which like, really didn't come to fruition in any way, right? All it did was kind of make Drug Butler seem scarier. But I don't think it actually made him more badass because it's just like, oh, well, you just picked a fight with the wrong guy, honestly. Right. If he if he had been like, oh, my family's dead and now I'm going to dedicate the next 10 years to pulling off the most elaborate heist ever. Right. And he just happened to be some smart guy. Right. He just happened to be whatever uh, that engineer in this movie just means uh, you are smart, I guess. <laughs> um, <it's> like, <laughs> smart enough to know anything. right? Smart just- and you know how to use tools. And yeah, you're, you're very good with tools and you also, uh, can learn law because apparently that's another, like those two things are, you know, compatible, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Um, so yeah, he's, if he had just, if he had just been some regular guy as he claims to be right, a law abiding citizen, just a regular guy, not some sort of secret CIA, um, mass murdering, like, you know, um, uh, savant, um, then that would have been made him more compelling, I think, or more sympathetic. Instead, he's just like, oh, like he just happens to be this, you know, badass, right? Secretly, and nobody knew about it, and uh, that never came out in any of Nick's research about him when he was representing him as a um, a client or anything like that, right? Uh, like it's all just like, oh, we'll just conveniently give him some sort of backstory while we're standing in this alley, and it never like comes back. It's not like they call up that spy and be like, hey, what's his weakness? Or it's not like they, you know, find a way to um, use that information against him. They're just like, oh, he, he's scarier than I thought he would be. <laughs> <laughs> right, so and I, I guess I didn't appreciate that. I really didn't think it was useful. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. It very much undercuts his status as a ordinary guy to be like, Your Honor, a I'm a law-abiding citizen. citizen, you know, yeah. I, and I'm and I'm normal, but also I'm I've killed a lot of people for my job, <laughs> so like just jot that down as well. Right. So yeah, I, I think that is that's a good point. And in that case, if we had re- if we could rewrite his backstory so that he spent the last ten years not working for the government and being a licensed killer, but instead just planning this particular thing, I would be okay with getting some explanation on it, like maybe showing why her cell phone stopped working, or you know at least giving us some sort of clue as to that being uh, something that was you know, worked towards and earned as opposed to just automatic. I would like I don't need a lot, right? Uh, but I I think I would settle for um Jamie Foxx makes it into a Jar Butler's lair, right? And as he's going through it, there's all these like 
prototypes of different bomb disposal robots or there's a bunch there's a whole like thing about cell phones like cell phone bombs or something you know it's right, just like, like a just phone like a, recall phone battery recall or something like right like some sort of montage of just like oh maybe like some little little clues you know just like to build up this world that we're we're in, inside of right instead of it just being literally deus ex machina type things or something or you know um maybe he's like Maybe he's killed a bunch of other people in the in the meantime. He's like practiced like torturing people, and that's how he knows that uh, to um, uh, keep Darby from swallowing his tongue. Right? Is because he's actually murdered all these other people, and it's like connected in this big string of murders that you know of like pedophiles or um, you know uh, serial killers or something that he's been going on this vigilante thing for a long time, and finally they're able to connect it because he's actually been practicing for years or something. You know, something to to kind of build up this backstory more to like give more to uh, Gerard Butler to like say, oh, he really is as clever as he is instead of just making everything that he does a com- just a writing convenience. He'd be like, <laughs> oh, and now he's going to snap his fingers and this is going to happen. But we don't have to explain why that is. It just it just is, you know? Yeah, well, it, it and again, it's like, it's wild that they're willing to do both. They're like, well, he's able to snap his fingers and make this phone explode, but also he has to tunnel into prison beforehand and then leave prison, then remote control a robot and blow up a truck. It's like, at that point, just shoot a rocket launcher on your shoulder and wear a ski mask, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's really not that different. And like, yeah, where's the, where's, I mean, we mentioned this already, but where's the, where's the poeticness of this, right? Uh, I mean, the, there, there isn't a lot, like, it's not like necessarily tied into these people's actions or anything, but, you know, uh, burying somebody alive, uh, you know, killing them during a lethal injection, and then like physically dismembering them as they're alive are all very creative ways of killing people, right? They're, they're, um, they show, uh, as Jamie Foxx says, a bit of intellect, right? There, there's something, you know, bigger going on here. There's a certain artistry to it, right? And I think Gerard Butler, like his character, um, demonstrates that that sort of thing is important to him. So when he just goes off, he's like, okay, now I'm just going to strap a gun to a robot and shoot him from a distance, you know, or I'm going to, um, uh, what was the other thing? Oh, just plant bombs in everybody's cars, right? It, it becomes way less um like interesting to me right it it becomes way less fun because he's just like oh uh i'll just resort to normal terrorist activities you know um there should have been more thought put into the the way he killed people is what i think i totally agree and again it's like the further we get in the more i don't know i guess if if i'm glad we didn't copy saw by making us watch gruesome dismemberment but i do wish they'd copied saw a little bit more in the traps and and like ways of dying were related to the supposed sin of the victim so yes. that you know it would i don't know it's like you held your tongue during the trial now you like have to i don't know Right. Do something that hurts your tongue. I don't know. Eat this really sour candy. <laughs> That's my torture. I bought a, I bought an entire thing of sour Skittles and I removed the Skittles and now it's just sour powder and I'm going to pour it down your throat. How is he doing this from prison? No, <laughs> no I think the thing about Untraceable, right? Um, th- that movie has all these elaborate torture devices that are you know, connected to time releases, you know, and each one's a little bit different. You know, so some of them are better thought out than others. But, you know, 
every time a new one shows up, you're like, oh man, what kind of sick twisted thing is about to happen now? And you, you just completely lose track of that throughout this movie. Not only does Gerard Butler become less sympathetic as the movie goes on, but becomes less interesting because he's like, oh, now I'm just going to you know, do the, uh, I'm just going to plant a bomb at Sandy, City Hall, you know, like that will show him. Uh, as if right like what isn't there something poetic about killing someone in a specific way to get your point across right like oh the legal system is evil or corrupt or something so i'm going to you know corrupt them you know i'm going to do something with that um i don't know i just uh was ultimately kind of bored <laughs> yeah 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 no and, and like talking about kind of um the his downfall right i'm not a fan of chester being the key to to basically uncovering gerard butler's uh, like layer and his tunnels like it, it doesn't to me it doesn't really tie in well it, it seems super convenient to have this little bit of info blow the whole thing up not to mention that it's the most basic fake looking document i've ever seen in a movie like they <laughs> they clearly had an intern and they're like oh like you have to do something to help us make this movie so like go and and on microsoft word and create this we, document we, we need we need a document and we totally forgot to make this document we for filming in five <laughs> minutes I, I, you got a printer and a laptop come on it's like it's, it's the the document is mostly white space and it's got like three columns it's ridiculous um but what's more offensive is the way that they use that to actually like stop uh Gerard butler because they absolutely violate his civil rights they don't just it's not just implied it's literally stated before they go into his place like wait like what about his civil rights and yeah. Fox is like fuck his civil rights <laughs> like he doesn't say that specifically but that's essentially what he says and then they go in there and it ends up being the key to stopping all this stuff but like it doesn't like it does solve their problem of stopping Gerard Butler but it doesn't teach us a lesson or tie in thematically like you broke in there without a warrant are there no repercussions for this it, it it doesn't really make me think that Jamie Foxx has learned anything about the legal system. He's willing to bend the rules to get what he wants out of the system. Yeah, and he was always willing to do that, right? If the if the, if the lesson that we're supposed to, that he's supposed to take away is that you need to uh, use this mechanism to get what you think is right, right? To to stop acting within like simply by the book and go with what your gut is right, right? What no what you know is right and wrong, right? Jimmy Jimmy Fox was already doing that. You know, he was already doing what was expedient to himself, as as Gerard Butler said, like points out, right? So it's not um yeah, I, this was not out of character. This is not character growth to see him break into this place. All all, all it was was that um he was getting more and more desperate <laughs> yeah. to stop this guy. Yeah. Right, which is fine. Um, but don't act like you're teaching us a lesson or that your characters have an arc. Um, right. It, that's not what's happening here. He's just doing more of the same. I was convinced of this, and then I, I, guess I got completely distracted by the events of the rest of the movie, but I was convinced that Chester was Gerard Butler. Really? That he, yeah, he was, he was catfishing um, Sarah, or whatever her name is, and um, uh, he was, like, feeding her red herrings to, to like, uh, you know, string her along for, further, for longer. Especially after he contacts Jamie Foxx after Sarah dies, right? I'm like, oh, like, yeah, this is all like this is another part. This is another piece in Gerard Butler's plan. You know, I don't know. I, I like uh, that idea, but um, 
That's not what happened, right? <laughs> like, no. I totally missed it if that is. Because <laughs> no, again, it would have at all. Or again, but it's like if that is what would have happened, then he could have. Uh, his downfall would have been his own design, right? Where it's like one last deal, Jamie Fox. Like, let's do one last deal, and he's like, "No, I'm not making deals with murderers anymore." And then he's like, "Fine." And then he like blows himself up. He's like, "You finally changed. Like, I I can finish my spree here voluntarily." Maybe he doesn't have to blow himself up, but you know, something of that effect. And sure. He that obviously that's it doesn't come in at all. Yeah, so you, do you want to talk about the ending? Are you ready to talk about the ending? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for me, I think this movie is a lesson about endings. Um technically, right, it wraps everything up in a in a bow. Nick completes his arc, right? He learns that he shouldn't make deals with murderers. Clyde is hoisted by his own petard, right? He uh he goes too far, and then um, he gets blown up by his own actions. Um, and I like that, a, hoisted a, by his own petard. That's nice. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, there's a final encounter where the predator finally becomes the prey, right? There's a, and there's an epic explosion to cap it all off. I mean, on paper, it seems perfect, but I don't like it. For me, it's be, this is beyond simple function. The ending needs to follow through on the expectations set up earlier in the movie. I, find, I found Clyde, as I've mentioned, to be far more sympathetic than Nick is. And the best parts of the movie are when Gerard Butler reveals some elaborate trap or when someone gets killed in a crazy way. But instead of all of that, he ends up just setting up a suitcase bomb in City Hall and the bomb is easily moved back to his cell. We never get to see Clyde's, Nick, Clyde's plan for Nick, nor do I ever feel like Nick really understands what's going on. On. as one of the detectives mentions right he's like he's saving you for last right he's he's doing some he's doing all this to torture you jamie fox and he has something special planned for you i was so excited to see that i was like oh what's he gonna do for him what's he gonna do to what is you know Gerard butler gonna do to jamie fox to finally like you know get him right but um that never that never comes to fruition because nick stops him before he ever gets to that point these two characters are supposed to be they're coded to be equals, right? But it's really one-sided. Nick is 10 steps behind, and he never really catches up, like, philosophically. Clyde's understanding of the law is not something Nick ever seems to even consider, nor do we even see that part of his arc completed, right? Um, we are only told that Nick changes, and we see him at the end with his family, which makes sense from, you know, Gerard Butler's, like, I'm a family man, you know, perspective. But we never see him actually trying cases under a new appreciation for his position, right? We don't see it to see like a, a scene at the end where he has a new office, you know, he's, he's in the DA's chair and someone comes and says, Hey, we got, you know, we could get a deal for this uh, thing. And he, and James Fox says, no, we're not dealing with murderers anymore. This guy was a horrific criminal and we're going to go to trial and I'm going to, I'm going to go up there and speak my heart out and send this guy to jail, uh, through my, the power of my words. Um, you know, that never happens. Um, and that's also very dissatisfying because you never see Clyde's like uh, philosophy live on through nick which is kind of what he is supposed to be happening here so yeah i guess nick wins um but he doesn't doesn't feel like he deserved to win i don't like the way he wins and i never got to see how clyde might have won i don't feel relief that the terrorist has been stopped i don't feel good about where nick is now compared to the beginning of the movie and, like what i'm missing is a direct threat to nick's life or to his family, right? Nick has a wife and a kid, a daughter, right? Same as Clyde, which is supposed to connect these two characters together. But wouldn't it be way better if Clyde had somehow threatened Nick's family, 
right? And then suddenly, and then Nick's like, you've turned into the thing that you just swore to destroy. And Clyde's like, <laughs> what have I done? Right? And then like, you know, there's something, there's some sort of, you know, poetic like a recompense from that where Clyde realizes that he, like all of this was for nothing. All of this was for something that, that didn't belong, right? But instead, he basically wins in the end. He just kind of loses on a technicality, honestly, which feels very ineffective and very, um, uh, what's the word? Very non-cathartic very uh dis <laughs> um, disappointing this this is this isn't uh to me so yeah honestly this movie has to go further basically uh, it feels like it ends too soon um although i was also not excited to watch more <laughs> <So>. <laughs> i will say like i i love the way you you, you said that though about the ending because it 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 does complete nick's arc like technically nick does change by now he's like oh i care about my family more and like Clyde gets you know hoisted by his own petard as you said and there's the epic explosion which was awesome like that was a memorable scene of him looking at the bracelet and all that stuff uh, surface level it looks like everything came together um, yeah. but that's not enough that it that will satisfy you uh, enough to just be like okay the movie can end now but to to reach the heights that it set itself up to reach uh, you need much more um, which ultimately makes this movie super disappointing. Because um, it, yeah, it, it I keep I could keep have been thinking so great. about I keep thinking about leaving Las Vegas. Right, the, we we love that movie, and the ending of that movie was is one of the best parts of it. You know, and it really feels like in that in leaving Las Vegas, we're all leading to a specific lo- like place, and we get there despite all of these things like trying to convince us that we that's not where we want to go right we don't want to see our characters suffer we don't want to see our like anybody die and yet that's where we end up anyway and although like the the movie ending of the movie is very sad it feels perfect it feels like the the encapsulation of what the movie was trying to do and this one you it feels completely empty it feels like just cut off like midway right where it has all these things that it's trying to do and then nothing comes together it's just like um it it feels completely um disconnected almost in a in a very weird way because as we've just mentioned it fits it checks all the boxes right it has all of the things necessary to be you know a paper uh, on paper good ending um but it it's lacking that emotional resonance yeah well one thing that <laughs> was simultaneously disappointing but also uh, kind of great were some of the cliche uh, quips that we got to hear <laughs> in this movie, uh, which I would like to uh, direct your attention to now. Uh, we'll start with this one. We're going to need a list of all the people who had access to that machine. My people would not do this. I appreciate that, Warden, but I'm going to need more than a hall pass and a note from Mom. <laughs> this guy, yeah, the hard-boiled detective. <laughs> it's so... Um, like it feels so cliche, but also it, it like dialogue like this, um, I think susp- like changes the realm that this movie exists within because mm. there's a lot of great dialogue in this movie that makes it feel very real. It makes the consequences of everything feel very real. But then you have lines like this where you're like, oh, these guys are also just, you know, they're still very much in a movie and they're not going <laughs> to yeah, let you is, forget that this is happening in a fictional universe. Everyone's got a quip. Everybody's got something to say. <laughs> like they, uh, w- when the, I don't remember what position he is, but one of the guys in law enforcement, when they find Darby's body at the like 
dissection or whatever. He's like, good news. We found Darby. I gotta say though, he's looked better. Like, <laughs> wow! Like you're happening upon by far. I mean, I know this guy's probably seen other stuff, but like by far the most gruesome crime scene you've ever come across, and you can't even go two sentences without putting your little joke in there. Right? Uh, sorry, boss. This one's gonna be a, a some assembly required. <laughs> 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 Like, I think he's gonna be up in pieces. He's torn to pieces out here. Like, it's not. It's not clear to me when he says, "I say he's gotta look better." That he's dead. You know, when yeah. someone, if someone was to call me and said that to me, I'd be like, "What do you mean by that?" I'd be so pissed if someone yeah. was like, "This is how someone told me that this guy was dead." Yeah. Well, there's your problem. His head is completely disconnected from his body. <laughs> like, all right, smart ass. <laughs> Uh, and then and then um this other line here where they're uh they're negotiating they're in that like insane negotiating cage yeah which was, that was a cool set uh, it was badass that. yeah with the cops standing on the outside looking in and there's all the cameras i thought that was really memorable but uh you know they're they're negotiating for like the second time because he got the bed in the first negotiations but in the second one he just wants a meal and he's like you ever been to del frisco's I want a nice steak with all the trimmings. And he starts listing off some of the other things. Palm frites and asparagus. And then Jamie Foxx is like, fuck your palm frites. <laughs> like, this is such a Jamie Foxx line. Like you had to have, you got you have to have him say, fuck your whatever. You know, if he asked for yeah, tater yeah. tots, it would have been equally well delivered. Uh, and then, and then just one last quip that's in this same vein here. You think your wife and daughter would feel good about you killing in their name? My wife and daughter can't feel anything. They're dead. Which this one, I will admit, is a little bit more, I don't know, grounded. But I feel like he didn't have to add that last one in there. He could have just said, my wife and daughter can't feel anything. And that, like, I think gets the point across to me. But then to be like, they're dead. It's like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. No, it's... (laughs) Again, like the the movie suffers from the writing, honestly, because all of these lines are delivered with enough gusto that I they don't feel completely out of the movie. They feel very much like, you know, believable. And, you know, I like having the, our characters be kind of quippy and stuff, but like, especially this last scene. Right. I mean, the way I have it cut up is um, misleading, but there's like a minute of silence between where Gerard Butler is just staring like back at um, at um, Nick Rice. And he's like. You know, he's like kind of pacing his um his little cage there. And it's just like a palpable moment of him trying to reconcile this, right, in his own mind before he answers um, you know, or before he answers Jamie Foxx. He 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 has to, he's saying this almost to reinsure himself just as much as he's retorting to um uh, Jamie Foxx, right? He's like, uh like he, you know, he's right. He yeah, I know he's right, but like he's just gonna sit there and try to like wrestle with that. Um and you can see that well like portrayed on on gerard butler's face he he definitely seems like he's he's wrestling with that internally he's you know trying to make right in this situation but still like you know pushing for um uh his his crusade so yeah again like i think acting in this movie is is good decent yeah no i agree and again i love seeing these two guys but um yeah. Maybe a better scene. Maybe a better. Uh, they deserve better. Um, yeah. Okay, I got one other thing I want to talk about before we move on. 
Um, so there's a scene in this movie where uh, Nick um, Rice, uh, Nick Fox, um, Jamie Rice is um, uh, supposed to go to his daughter's um, cello concert, cello recital. And uh, he can't because he's actually going to go to the lethal injection, like the actual execution of one of the criminals um, in the you know case that the, the involved Gerard Butler's family, um, which is you know kind of an important moment. I would I would think you know uh, if you're a lawyer and you're sentencing, you're responsible for sentencing someone to death. I think it's the least you could do to show up to their execution. I think that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, even if it means you can't go to your daughter's cello recital, but although you know he does get into an argument with his wife, and you know it does seem like a bad father in this situation, it is a kind of morally gray. Uh, situation to be in uh, because in every other situation i would say yeah go to your daughter's uh, cello performance um so uh, what they do is they have the scene of um him being killed right being set basically being strapped to the to the table and the, the needle going to his arm and everything being played as a montage intercut with the um daughter playing the cello and it's like like the curtains like reveal like the curtain comes off the stage at the same time as the curtain reveals in the room so they can all see him like lined up and everything as she's opening up her a uh, cello case um you know they see like the the needle going into his arm and like the straps going down on his on his wrists and stuff and it's like oh these two scenes like they mirror each other but like do they actually like what do they have to do that's similar what what is going on like why would you put a child's cello recital at, like in, in direct comparison to a lethal injection, what do these two <laughs> things have to do with each other? Why would they do that? Do you have any ideas? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've I, I've had it. I've got you. Okay. Get ready. I'm about to blow your mind. The Please. the beginning of that scene where the the um the curtains open up simultaneously uh, sets us up for this potentially cathartic experience where somehow the cello concert it, like poetically ties together uh, with this lethal injection and maybe there's going to be some sort of message that is brought about by witnessing those two things juxtaposed and at at the beginning you especially with the curtain opening you're like wow this is this is about to be really cool but then the longer the scene goes on that just completely falls apart and you end up with a mess that's completely disappointing compared to the promise which if anything is the theme of this movie so that that <laughs> wow. this is just a microcosm of you did what blow this my movie mind is. actually that's pretty amazing <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right because they don't even end at the same time they like, don't the cello concert's killed. an afterthought <laughs> he's he's killed like, like, like the cellist concert ends. Everyone's like gives a standing <laughs> ovation and claps, and then it goes on to like him being killed, and then him being like you know screaming and stuff. If they had like if she had been playing like oh it's like it's a, like a, you know cameras spinning around her or like you know now the the beat is picking up or something like that. You know it's becoming more intense as the guy like gets lethally injected. That would like you know, cause some sort of, uh, maybe some sort of climax, you know, simultaneous climax or something. Not at yeah. all what happens. The climax of this cello thing happens, like, a minute before the climax of the, uh, of the, uh, lethal injection. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. you're totally right. You're totally right. That there, <laughs> It's just a metaphor for how poorly edited and directed and written this movie is. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I think that is a good place to conclude our overall section, and we can move on 
to our cool Easter eggs. What do you got? Okay, I got a few things I found on IMDb, which I thought were interesting. Um, so it's kind of a long list of text, but I won't read the whole thing. Um, basically, uh, Gerard Butler was originally cast as um, Nick Rice, and Jamie Foxx was originally cast as Clyde Shelton. So the, originally, they were when they were writing this movie or like when they were casting this movie, the two leads were actually in different, the opposite positions. So it would have been Jamie Foxx as the mastermind killer and uh, Gerard Butler as the um, as the district attorney. Um, I don't know. I thought that was pretty interesting, honestly, especially since they kind of they try to make them very similar, right? There, there's an attempt to make them a, you know very similar characters, so it doesn't seem like it would be that much of a stretch to do that. But um, and what's funny actually about this story is that um, like no one's really sure who suggested that they switch. Um, when the producers the producers approached Butler about the playing Clyde, he he was like, "Yeah, um, that would be really awesome." And then later on, um, it was Butler's claims that he was the one that suggested uh, that they switch. Um, so he's like, "I'm not sure. Like, what what came first? Did Jamie Foxx su- make the suggestion, or did um, <laughs> or did Gerard uh, Butler uh, make the suggestion?" And they both seemed to agree that the other way worked better. And then um, it said it also says Butler also said that he initially regretted that this idea was implemented by the other producers, but added that the entire process worked out well for the project. So he maybe even he uh, saw a little bit of flaw in this, um, but who knows. Um, also, Gerard Butler apparently studied law and was close to being a lawyer uh, before he decided to switch and become an actor. So, huh. um, uh, kind of interesting little thing there. And the other thing that was kind of cool was Del Frisco's Double Eagle Steakhouse is a real place. It's actually a chain of um, very fancy steak restaurants um, all over the country. The one that's closest to us, I think, is in Charlotte, actually. Oh, um, really? Yeah. And uh, apparently, uh, director Gary uh, Gray uh, ate there multiple times while he was filming this movie, and that's what um, inspired him to make it Clyde's lunch in the movie. And then there was actually a um, uh, after party uh, that they held at the uh, the local um, Del Frisco's um, after uh, they filmed after the screening of this movie. Um, so yeah, it was uh, important to the director. I think <laughs> that's why it was featured prominently uh, <laughs> in this. And they tipped him well. They encouraged tipping them well. So. 30%. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up our cool Easter eggs. Joey, I think you know what time it is. It is time for us to go a little deeper. deeper, deeper. So um, I think this movie brings up an interesting element of crime, which is vigilante justice. And I did like kind of the barest amount of research possible to find out about some real life uh, vigilantes. And I found this article on all that's interesting.com that had um, a list of 11 uh, like real life uh, vigilantes or groups of people that were vigilantes out acting outside the law um, and all sorts of different cases. And there were, some of them were actually pretty interesting and relevant to this movie, including one from Germany. Uh, this woman named Marianne Backmeyer actually shot uh, the man who killed her daughter in, uh, in court during the court proceedings. Um, she snuck a gun into the courtroom. And then I think it was, as he was approaching the stand or something, she shot him in the back. She shot eight times and hit him six times. And he died in a puddle of blood right there in the courtroom. Damn. Uh, <laughs> pretty badass, honestly. Uh, it's a, um, it's kind of, it's a, fa- it's a very famous story. It's probably one of the most famous like acts of vigilante justice, um, ever. And, um, 
yeah, she eventually, I think she was convicted of seven years for seven years after killing him, um, which I don't know if that's like normal for killing somebody. But she was not. sentenced seven years later or no, she was sentenced to seven years in prison uh, oh, okay. for killing this guy, um, which, uh, you know, probably appropriate since she was right there. Uh, in a, in a very similar kind of act, uh, this guy named Gary Plouch, I think he was from Ohio, somewhere in the U S, uh, actually killed his son's rapist and he did it while he was on television. Um, so the guy was on, um, the guy was being brought, uh, into the airport. I think he had just been caught and, um, was like, they were marching him through the airport and the, and Gary Plouch was like at a, um, a phone booth on the phone with somebody narrating what he was doing he's like oh here he comes you're about to hear a shot and he went out there and while they were filming this guy being brought into the airport he shot him right like right there in the chest i believe um and uh and killed him and he was like he was sentenced to seven years on a suspended sentence five years probation and 300 hours of community service which i from the article indicated that was a pretty lesser sentence uh for his act because people were um felt bad about it and um it was interesting because the 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 boy that was raped actually like survived and went on to write a book uh, about his father killing um, his his rapist, which is a, a pretty interesting uh, you know life experience to say the very least, uh, beyond being extremely traumatic. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, that's something I feel like. I mean, I I can't really feel myself because I'm not a parent, but I think that a lot of parents would feel that way, where it's like, do whatever you want to me, but. You do something yeah. like a kid, and I will just, I'll, nothing will stop me. So there's like, I think of the 11, four or five of them were people like taking revenge on someone who killed like one of their children, um, which, yeah, exactly. I think it's probably the thing most likely to drive someone to do something like this. Um, one of the more interesting and kind of, I, I hesitate to say fun because it ended very tragically, but one of the more interesting ones was a man named Marvin Hemeyer. Um, who uh, terrorized a, co- a Colorado town with a custom-built, uh, quote-unquote, kill dozer. Um, you, may have heard of, you may have heard of this. This was back in 2004. I remember seeing videos about this uh, um, years later. But he basically had a bulldozer that he had bought years ago. He outfitted it with armor, like, like a plate armor, and built like little like areas where he could stick guns out of, and went on a two-hour rampage, destroying homes, stores, and even town hall. Um, uh, and he basically just went through with his bulldozer and knocked down all these buildings. Um, and the reason why he did this was because there was some sort of zoning law that was um, <laughs> that made his life hell, basically. There was so he had his house, and then there was like an empty lot, like a field or something. And across the empty lot was a like a place where he did his welding. And they were going to build a concrete plant right there in that lot, so he wouldn't be able to walk through it anymore. And he was so pissed at this that he he went through all this like legal stuff. He was so pissed at this that he went on this rampage and ended up destroying the um <laughs> the concrete plant and a bunch of other stuff as well. And investigators later found that everything he demolished was somehow connected to his battle against the zoning commission. So, um, you know, uh, if you feel passionate about city planning, maybe this is something you should consider. No, <laughs> I actually, I actually did hear about this. There's a movie called Tread that oh, came really? out in 2019. That's about this. Yeah, well, I, I haven't it seen ended, it, but I, I remember it ended reading very about tragically because he ended up killing himself after he got stuck um, in like a basement or something. Um, so you know, it, it it was kind of a it was kind of fun up until that point, but. Um, there was two examples in that article of people that actually got their 
um, the people that killed their daughters arrested. Uh, one of the guys was a, um, I think it was, I think it was in Germany or something. It, it was like, it was a very strange story. Basically this guy was like a, a doctor or, or something. He like worked on the autopsy for this guy's, for this woman's uh, murder. And, uh, it turns out that he was involved in it heavily and actually had like injected her with all this stuff and was, was doing all this stuff. And he had like escaped authorities because he was like high enough, enough up in the justice system but instead of this guy instead of like the the father actually like trying to kill him he actually went through like a bunch of complicated legal proceedings to get him like extradited from france or in inside of france and got him arrested and um and the guy ended up sending uh uh yeah um oh yeah what did he do oh he actually kidnapped him that's right because he ended up facing uh prison time because he ended up kidnapping him but he had in effect put him in a position for him to be arrested and in a different country and uh face justice and then the other guy actually uh worked with the police because his daughter was kidnapped in mexico uh which is something that uh happens like very frequently it's uh, one of the scariest like uh, elements of this country that lives like it's directly south of us is that there's tons and tons of kidnappings 90 percent of kidnappings uh are not re like rep even reported uh because they're afraid of um reprisal but this guy actually went through the legal death like proceedings went through this entire investigation and ended up setting up a sting with the police to catch the guy who um uh, murdered his daughter uh, which is pretty crazy yeah, and you then, can. Um, um, whenever you go, go whenever you travel as a U.S. citizen, you can actually register with the uh, like the U.S. consulate in whatever country you're going to, and let them know that you'll be traveling there, just in case something happens. Like they can at least know you're there and potentially help you oh. out. Like if you lose your passport or something like that. And I I registered with them before I went to Mexico earlier this year, and they like sent me this document that was like all the different regions of Mexico and like what is dangerous there. And like so many of them were like the consulate recommends you do not go to this area. And, <laughs> and they're like murders, kidnapping, you know, uh, yeah. theft, uh, pickpockets and, and like kidnapping was everywhere. So yeah, it's definitely going down in Mexico. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying. Um, there was also a couple of, in this article, a couple of groups of vigilantes. The one that was most interesting to me was this event that happened in skidmore missouri involving this man named ken mcelroy he was basically like a town bully um he wasn't like a kid though he was like a grown man um he did all this like horrible stuff he murdered a few people and like nobody had like he actually i think he got convicted but then he like got out on bail um he uh killed somebody's dog um and uh set somebody's house on fire um for some reason um and eventually everyone was so fed up with it that um they had like a town meeting and said we're just gonna kill this guy so they went to the bar that he was at and there were there, some accounts say up to 50 different vigilantes were involved in the onslaught and he was shot multiple times and struck by at least two different firearms and he went he was able to make it to his truck but that's where he succumbed to his wounds Nobody uh, called an ambulance or agreed to testify against anyone else <laughs> in court. And to this day, no one has ever been charged in connection with his death. <laughs> wow. I mean, I hope that he really was this town bully and wasn't yeah. just some guy who got murdered by his town. But that does sound like vigilante justice to me. Yeah. So there you go. Some real accounts of vigilante justice. It's pretty rare, but it does happen occasionally. And doesn't happen usually in cases like we see in Gerard Butler, uh, Clyde, Gerard Butler's Clyde Shelton in this movie, uh, where he is, uh, um, you know, going after someone who killed his family. 
Okay, well, I think that is going to bring us to the end of our discussion on Law Abiding Citizen. As we do at the end of every episode, we will now deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to Law Abiding Citizen? I want to uh, hire Clyde Shelton to remove the part of my brain that is storing the memory of this movie. (laughs) Wow. Um, I give this movie a gun that looks really cool, but when you pull the trigger, it paralyzes you for one hour and 49 minutes. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, there we go. Finally saw this movie. And um, I don't know. I think it's a good exercise to watch movies that are flawed so that you can remember like that things like this can be bad. You can appreciate it more in movies that are good. I still think this movie is memorable, but um, there are parts of it that are memorable. But I can say that about almost every movie. Uh, you know, I, I the, you know the worst thing about you can say about a movie is that it is boring or forgettable. And unfortunately, there's a lot of this movie that I feel like falls into that category. Yeah. I I agree in general with with what you're saying, but it's always way more interesting and like um, I guess um, uh, illustrative or educational to watch movies that are bad for interesting reasons as opposed to being bad for uh, boring reasons. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's setting up really well and failing to accomplish that is an interesting reason to be bad. Okay. Uh, like You could also not set up at all. But we, we uh, don't need to relitigate the discussion we just had. We can look ahead to our next discussion. Uh, what are we doing next on Apple Chat? We are doing a movie called RRR. If you've heard of this movie, then you know why we want to talk about it. But if you haven't, I recommend you go watch it on Netflix. It's one of the greatest cinematic experiences of the last, you know, 10 years. Incredible. Well, I still haven't seen it yet, so I'm looking forward to uh, knowing what you're talking about here. RRR, our next movie here on Affable Chat. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, I challenge you to find a place we're not on. If you can find a, a platform that we're not we're not listed, then uh, let us know and we'll, yeah. we'll, make, we'll remedy that. Say it. Um, <laughs> affablechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social accounts, including our Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all of which are at affablechat and even our email address, affablechat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then tell a friend about it. All you have to say is, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Affable Chat. That's going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.